The first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. <coughs> Isaiah 42, starting at the first verse. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and, all, and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. second reading can be found in Luke chapter 8, which will be found on page 1037, beginning at verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciple, let us go over the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. They sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake. So the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Jurassians, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High?' I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard. He had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them out in the Babis. 
A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man with whom he demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people now the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region dressings asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all the town what Jesus had done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on? On? Wicked. Thank you. Oh, sorry, blocking your path. Thank you for those readings. Let's pray. Through the written word and the spoken word, Lord, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Always, um, oh, I'm quite loud. Too loud. Always good to start a sermon with a question. That's what people tell me. So here it comes. What is your mind most occupied with at the moment? I'll give you a moment to think about it. Do the usual, share it with the person next to you, shout it out. What is your mind most occupied with at the moment? Would anyone care to share? No? Cool, I'll tell you mine anyway. Mine, it's coming up to Christmas, end of the year. And apart from preparing the sermon, my mind is most occupied with this word. If we can put it on the screen, Pete. Luminescence. Luminescence. Luminescence means the, the emission of light by a substance that has not been heated, as in fluorescence or phosphorescence. That's most on my mind at the moment. I know. Um, think glow worms, glow sticks, the characters in Avatar, uh, neon lights, LEDs, x-rays, all that type of stuff. Not light bulbs and not volcanoes. Luminescence. And the reason why this is so on my mind is because in three weeks' time, it's our annual work Christmas party. Here's a picture of my outfit from last year. The, uh, the theme was Flight of Fancy, so I went as Cloud Nine. Um, the, the Dyson Christmas party is a bit of a strange event. You get nearly a thousand people dressed up in the most 
ridiculous um, of outfits. Cardboard structures, really well-engineered flight suits last year, and uh, wings, and anything that's loosely at all related to the theme goes. Um, there have been, in years gone by, sort of five-meter tall wind turbines that people made. Um, they banned them the next year because um, of door restrictions. Um, and every year, they put on specialized transport to get people's outfits to the event. It is, it is literally the most bizarre thing. Um, of course, there are, there are prizes. And for creating a costume that is so unique and inspired or technically complex or perhaps just beautifully simple, for a lot of people, that's the main attraction. So earlier this week, I drew a chart for my colleagues which tried to capture the, the time leading up to the party from when we find out what the theme is to actually the party. So there it is. That's my chart. On the X and the Y axis, we have response and we have time. And as time moves close to the party, our response changes. So when you find out the theme, you get a really big spike of excitement. That initial flurry, that kind of passing ideas around, uh, collating them, bouncing them around with each other, that creativity, the, the sort of, ooh, ooh ah, mm, what about this, what about that? You get peaks and troughs of ideas, and eventually you get to an idea that you're happy with, and that is selection at the top. And then comes Cliff. There are a lot of pictures of Cliff. I went for that one um, in his younger days. Anyway, Cliff comes, and financially, the costume is too expensive. It's too complex to build. It's going to take too long to make. And you think you've got an idea, but that commitment to start building it is too great. So you plummet down the cliff, and you have the sort of meanderings, and you throw around ideas where you go, well, I really want to go as this. Maybe I can make it cheaper. Maybe I can make it simpler, maybe quicker. And this, you know, time marches on, and eventually, resolution. You choose an outfit. You start your build. The first fruits are seen. This is it. You think this is it. This is going to be a great outfit. Excitement. Build and build and build. And you get to deliverance at the end. The party. You go. You win all the prizes. Everyone praises you for the most amazing outfit. And in reality, actually, it doesn't happen like that. You go. You regret your costume choice straight away. You forget that you now can't even get to the bar for any food or drink. You let alone can't go to the toilet for the whole night. So you end up ditching your costume within about five minutes and you enjoy the rest of the evening in your own clothes. <laughs> That's not quite what happened last year, but um, yeah, I left my outfit there. Um, the reason I mentioned the Christmas party and the reason I asked you about what's on your minds at the moment is because whether it's occupied with trivial things like party planning um, or bigger decisions in life, we often have similar experiences to this chart flurries of excitement, moments of revelation, and sort of these challenges thrown at us that throw us off course, and of course, cliffs, and ultimately deliverance at the end. And today, those two passages in Luke, they offer excitement, they offer revelation, they offer us some fear, they offer us challenge, both for the disciples, but also for us reading them now. So I want to look at both in turn, but what I want to do is pick out three major sort of challenges that came to my mind when I was preparing this sermon. And they all begin with F, because I made them that way. Fear is the first one. Forces and further. Fear, forces, and further. And we'll explore how these challenges manifest themselves in this passage, how they impact our lives, and then also the confidence we have in God to overcome them. So the first challenge is fear. 
If you have your Bibles open, it's at verse 22. Now the story starts out simply enough. Jesus says, let's go for a ride. The disciples were around. They were used to this. They've been traveling around, comfortable with the idea of life on the road. You think if it were happening now, we'd perhaps call it the Messiah tour. And not only that, they're on the Sea of Galilee. It's like one of our friends saying, hey, let's go into Bath. You wouldn't think twice. You would not think twice about it. And Jesus is exhausted from his preaching, his healing, his saving. He decides to take a nap at one end of the boat. No problem with that. In one sense, the disciples must have been thankful. A quiet moment to process all they've seen and heard. A bit of downtime, maybe. Then, all of a sudden, this squall comes up, as we described, this great big storm. Now, storms weren't uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. It's the largest freshwater lake in the world. Relatively shallow, a couple of hundred feet at its lowest point. It's fairly tropical around the, um, the shores, and it's surrounded by these really high mountains. They get up to sort of 2,000 feet. So you get really cold air rushing in, funneled through the mountains, meeting this warm air at the bottom, and that's where we get these storms. So these guys are fairly used to a bit of strange weather. But this storm was different. This storm is so huge, so powerful, so threatening. As Luke writes in verse 23, they were in great danger. Luke describes the boat being swamped, water rushing over, wind sort of buffeting them around. Now the fear comes. They fear for their lives. And what do they do? Scared disciples fearing for their lives, they wake Jesus. The words, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And in Mark's gospel, the same emphasis. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So Jesus is awake. And as Luke puts it, he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. It's easy to think of Jesus as this this mellow, softly spoken man, how he's portrayed sometimes in films and TV, how we think of him at Christmas sometimes. In my mind, it's kind of like Farmer Hoggett in Babe saying to the storm, that'll do, pig, that'll do. He's also a good shepherd, actually. But no, not here. Jesus rebukes him. Rebuked is the word Luke uses. That's told off. He speaks with force. He commands. I can't help but think he probably could have whispered, but perhaps it's more for the effect for the disciples. Either way, the storm dies down. And what next? Jesus says, where is your faith? Not, is everyone okay? Anyone hurt or good? He says, no, where's your faith? He rebukes the disciples for that question. This group of men had seen Jesus heal the sick, forgive sins, cast out demons. But when they returned to the lake, the lake there where they make their living, the environment they're used to, suddenly they completely forget Jesus' power, all the things he's done before. Where is your faith? We can think of this in our own lives. Where is your faith can mean, do you have any faith? Where is your faith? But also it can mean, where is your faith? Where have you put your faith? It's so easy for us to separate our lives into distinct chunks, work, family, church. And in those chunks, we vary our levels of faith. We think of God differently or not at all in some of them. Sometimes our faith struggles to get past that door on the way out on a Sunday. So whether it's Monday morning or whether it's January after Christmas, do we give God and others and we show others that faith at all times or do we react a bit like the disciples? We're going to drown, don't you care? The storm has died down. The waters have subsided and there's now a calm, glossy finish. And do we have relaxed disciples? No. 
Luke writes in 25, he says, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. You kind of think the disciples must have had some understanding of who Jesus was. They didn't wake him because they needed a carpenter. They were in need of a divine solution. It's a bit of a watershed moment. Excuse the pun. Sorry. Um, it's a bit of a watershed moment for them. As I said, you know, these were disciples that had seen Jesus perform miracles. You know, he was a teacher, perhaps, the Messiah. But now they see him doing something that surpasses what man can achieve. He's moving into spiritual realms. He's doing what only God can do. This miracle is could be compared to Moses. It's parting of the Red Sea stuff. These were men now in awe. They were stunned. They were in fear and amazement. So in this first passage alone, we've seen fear in the disciples, both in times of great danger for their own lives, but also in times of great revelation in who Jesus was. So fear is a challenge for us. It can easily disable our, our connection with God and our relationship with him. If we take Mark's versions of events, don't you care if we drown? We blame God in our fear sometimes. Why are you not helping, Lord? How easily we do this in our own lives. Someone wrote, fear results from a person's inability to trust in God's power to provide, our inability to show faith. Faith doesn't just happen, it has to be struggled for, it has to be constantly reapplied. And fear challenges us, it challenges our relationship with God. So that's the first of our Fs, fear. For the second challenge, forces, we look to our second reading, the healing of the demon-possessed man. So the disciples have now crossed the Sea of Galilee to a region called Gerasenes, or however it's pronounced. I always get them wrong. Um, it's actually called something else in the other Gospels, so we'll come on to that shortly. No sooner had Jesus stepped off the boat on dry land, he's met by a man in verse 28, shouting at the top of his voice. And we learn quite a lot about this man. He's immediately described by Luke as demon-possessed, stark naked, hadn't worn clothes or lived in a house for a long time. He now lives amongst the tombs in the cemetery. And you can imagine him being quite a nuisance to the town. They chained his hands and his feet. They kept him under guard. But the power of the demon inside of him, possessed, was so great that it broke the chains and he went to live in solitary places, it says. And what was he shouting? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. I read that knowing your opponent's name was regarded as a means of establishing dominance over them. Jesus, son of the most high God, says the demon-possessed man. It's interesting, isn't it, that in our last passage, the disciples were not sure exactly who Jesus was, yet some slightly crazy man from a faraway land knows exactly who Jesus is. It's that spiritual realm versus the human. So Jesus' response to this man, he demands his name. What is your name? Legion, he replied. And it says, because many demons had gone into him. So the way Luke describes the man leads us to think he's not just possessed, he is occupied. A legion was a Roman military unit made up of 6,000 or so people. This man isn't controlled by just one unclean spirit. Luke wants to impress upon us that whether it was 6,000 demons or not, it was a lot. So when Jesus begins to talk to Legion, we start to understand the power these demons have over this man. One um, commentator wrote online, it's hard to keep separate the 
pronouns in these stories. The he is legion, the demons, and the him is the man. It all gets a bit confusing. And it's not really so much a linguistic problem, it's a problem of identity, a problem with anyone who has a demon. The core question being, who am I? And this man has lost his name, his individuality stripped away. He has no identity left, except for what he is captive to. He's not Elijah, Simon, Steve, Phil, it's Legion. He's totally defined by what assails him, what robs him of his health and his happiness in the world. And in our lives, we can sometimes struggle with this identity problem as well. We can so often attribute calamities and disorders to forces of nature or internal emotional problems. We might not, we might not attribute them to demonic possession nowadays and unclean spirits, but we are familiar with the power of evil in our lives. You don't have to watch the news uh, for too long a moment to see the impact on, in, in, on international scale, but also the raw power of evil in things like terrorism, but also in our more personal levels, such as drugs and alcohol and gambling and sex and so on. So the second challenge from our passages today is one of identity. In every aspect of my life, who am I? Who am I in God? And how do I overcome these forces from disrupting me? So that's the second challenge. We've had fear, we've had forces. The third challenge that we see from this passage is F, further. So I said, depending on which gospel you read this passage in, the location will vary. Um, I'll say them all wrong, but there's Gerasenes, Gergesenes, Gadarenes. They might, you think that might present a problem to someone reading from outside that they can't all agree, but actually, they all do have one thing in common. All of these places were outside of Israel, the land of the Gentiles, which means that Jesus is not just crossing a lake. He's not just going to another town. He's going across boundaries. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever take a band of followers over there. And that partly explains the reasoning behind the name differences, isn't it? That actually the gospel writers couldn't quite remember which place it was, likely because none of them had ever been there before or were ever likely to go there. But we know it's Gentile territory. But where Jesus was taking the disciples was more than a quick exchange trip. They were going to one of the most unclean places imaginable. To exercise legion, Jesus went into unclean Gentile territory, to a hillside covered in unclean animals, to a slightly crazy demon-possessed man who lives amongst the tombs, as unclean a character as you could possibly find. I don't know about you, but I get nervous going to Swindon. Other towns are available, if anyone lives in Swindon, but it's quite a shock for these disciples. And Anyway, we've seen Luke, over the last few chapters, pile story on top of story, a slave, then a dead man, a prostitute, now a crazy man, all to, as Simon mentioned last week, build this community of followers. Jesus' offer of friendship is opened up to those seen as contaminated and corrupt, the lowest in our society. And if we go on in the story, the man is healed, his demons are destroyed into the waters, and what happens afterwards is particularly relevant. Generally, with stories of Jesus' healings, we don't find out what happened afterwards. They often end with, your faith has made you well, your sins are forgiven. We kind of have this assumption that whoever he is talking to lives sort of happily ever after. They go off to work in a bank, they raise a family, they have their in-laws over for weekends. It's kind of, we don't really get that feel of what What's next? But actually, in this case, 
we're told what happens afterwards, and it's not that encouraging. So in verse 37, it says, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes, or wherever else it was, asked Jesus to leave them because they were afraid. Afraid of what? We're talking about a people who have just seen a large part of their livelihood career down a hill and be destroyed in an instant. And the result for them is one slightly crazy guy is now not so crazy. So you can imagine them weighing it up in their heads. Even if they trusted who Jesus was, even if they understood his power to heal, they're thinking, is it worth a few thousand pigs every time? And that's almost one of the most challenging parts for the disciples and for spreading the good news today. The story is a question of how to deal with change. Another person wrote that Carol, um, they wrote, when healing comes, not only is it the one who receives it changed, but the community around them must also respond. So this third challenge further is about how do we share that gospel further? How can we have confidence to spread the good news even when it's outside of our comfort zone? and not all people are open to it. So we very briefly looked at three challenges. We looked at the challenge of fear and our sort of seeming inability to allow to always have faith in God's provision. We've touched upon our identity and the challenge that evil forces present to that. And then we've also briefly looked at the challenge of sharing the good news further. So what does all this mean for us? How do we overcome these three challenges? Well, the first challenge of fear why or how can I take comfort when we're fearful? How can we trust in God's provision? In the case of the storm, we must remember that Jesus is literally in the boat with the disciples. They might not always consider him attentive, sleeping on the job, but the answer is that their boat will not, it cannot capsize with God on board. And how do we know he's in our boat? How do we know that he's walking alongside us? Well, like the disciples, we can read some of the Old Testament promises. So in Genesis, it says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. In Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And in Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. How amazing are those three passages? Fear will always remain a constant thread in many of our lives, and no doubt some things are scarier than others. But if we focus on God's promises, if we can begin to trust in him more in our times of need. The second challenge, evil forces taking apart our identities. The demons in this passage can't stand the power that Jesus has over them. They beg to be cast out into the herd of pigs. They recognize, they know the authority that Jesus has over them. And rather than challenge him, they want to run away. With a single command, Jesus is able to rid the most horrendous of evil afflictions, legions of demons inside this man. And with one command, Jesus can just make them vanish. You've got to think, how much easier should it be for Jesus to overcome those in my lives? If we let him in, if the question being, really is, do our own demons recognize the authority of Jesus to not only evict, but also to eventually destroy them in our lives? In Colossians 2, uh, we read, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. 
The third challenge, spreading the good news further. The, the Jesus of the New Testament doesn't fit with our hopes and dreams very neatly. He's not what religious leaders wanted in the first century, what they're expecting, what they're looking for at all. And he had this tendency to upset people's ways of life and their comfort. And in that second passage today, there's a lot of pleading. So the demons beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. The people beg for Jesus to leave and the healed man begs Jesus that he might go with him. And in response, Jesus tells the demons to leave. He tells the people he will leave and he tells the man he can't leave. And the result really is that no one lives that happily ever after. After an encounter with Jesus, his life-changing power, everyone is left in turmoil. The man has been healed, but he's now a healed man among a much wider audience who aren't that pleased. So sharing the gospel more widely, opening up his word to those in society we feel need to hear Jesus' life-changing power requires us to be like the man in the story, a saved face among a sea of Gentiles. I read an interesting piece in preparation for this sermon which spoke about how uh, the domestication of Jesus or how we make Jesus go away in our own lives. It went like this, the people who hanged Jesus never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up the shadowing personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judea, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet. Such a Jesus leaves us unhealed, but it does protect us from the fierce and power of God. We tame him. We turn him into someone who is kind and gentle, one who doesn't get upset, not a threat to anyone. But if we're to spread the good news further, we firstly have to believe ourselves, don't we, in the power of God, the power to squash storms, to overcome demons, to turn our lives upside down. And only when we truly appreciate that sheer life-changing power that Jesus holds, others will start to see it too. So, at the start of this sermon, I showed you that chart. On it had excitement and revelation, fear and challenge. And today, we can see these are all part of living a life in service to Christ. May we respond with a renewed awareness of God's power to guide us through fear, to overcome evils, and to strengthen us in sharing the good news. Let's pray. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lord, thank you for strengthening our faith with your awesome power, for guiding us through the storms of life. Lord, help us to seek out new lands, to share our faith across boundaries and to build this community of followers in your name. We pray, amen.